Well, hi everyone. I'm Janet B. Recovered from Compulsive Eating and Bulimia. Really happy to be here with all of you on a Thursday night um, to talk about resentments. So we've been going in order, right? We've so we started out. Someone admits they're powerless over food and their life is unmanageable, but that doesn't get us anything. That just gets us in the door. And if we're willing to go to any length we start embarking upon these steps. And step two, we do some work so that we can come to believe, even if we don't believe when, believe it when we walk in the door, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, God, as we understand him, can restore us to sanity, can actually do a renovation job on our hearts and minds. So it's like the it's like the illness can't live in the new soul soil that we have. It's a complete renovation. And we start to believe that God can do it because we see him do it in others. And we start noticing little by little how he can do it with us. And then in step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. We basically say, God, here I am. Take me, take all my problems. And I will try as best I can to do your will. And I need your help to do that. It's basically we consecrate our lives to him. We're no longer our own. We belong to him. And again, it's all a process. So if you're new and you're like, I don't even know if God exists, it's okay. We can help you. Um, most of us started either not believing God existed or being practical agnostics, which means we believe that God existed, but so what? Made no difference in our lives. But so here we are. Um, if you have your book, we're on page 63, right after we've done a third step and given our lives to God. And at the very bottom of the page, it says next, meaning right after we do this, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. Okay, look at those two words there, launched and vigorous. So that tells me that after I do my step three, I don't get to just like sit and, you know, smell the roses for a week. I can do it for an hour. I can bask in God for a while, but there's work to do. Launched, vigorous action. And they say, page 64, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. And then here's such a cool line. Though our decision, our step three decision, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Okay, that is a long sentence. But so let's break it down. Here's what it says. Our decision was vital, vital, life-giving, and crucial, important, about the most important thing we could ever do. It says, it won't have a permanent effect unless we follow it up. So what they're saying is, if we do this work to remove our defects of character, it can have a permanent effect. Recovery can be permanent. Um, I've heard people say at meetings sometimes, relapse is, is part of recovery. That is absolutely not true. It is not in this book that relapse is part of recovery. In fact, on page 120, it says that it's possible to not relapse at all. It says it is infinitely better that he has no relapse at all. So if we commit our lives to God, 
do the work to clean up the wreckage of our past because we all have wreckage, make our amends, and then live each our lives cleaning up the wreckage of each day, praying and meditating to stay close to God and doing our best to help others and practice the spiritual principles of kindness, honesty, self-sacrifice. We never, ever have to binge again. So they're telling us that, um, but it requires a strenuous effort to do what? It says to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. So it's my job to face these things by doing an inventory, but I can't get rid of them, right? It, our book tells us that we couldn't get rid of selfishness on our own. So to me, this is beautiful. My job is to face my defects, my resentments, my fears, my harms, to admit them. And then it, it's God's job to remove them in step seven, to remove my defects of character. And it says, we have to put forth a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. You know, so often people say, the food is what blocks me from God, but that's not what they're saying here. They're saying it's our character defects, our resentments, and our fears that are blocking us off. That food is a symptom. That if I'm eating compulsively and can't stop, that's a symptom that I'm in active compulsive eating. It's like if I have pneumonia and I'm coughing really badly and I go to CVS and get some cough medicine, that's not gonna help. Treat, the cough is only a symptom of the pneumonia. I need something stronger. I need an antibiotic. So they're saying here, don't try and treat it by just saying, I'll put down the food, then I'll get a connection with God. Because if we're a real compulsive eater, we can't just put down the food without spiritual help. Okay, so they're telling us food is a symptom that if I'm eating compulsively, there's something wrong. I remember early on when I was going to strong recovery meetings after seven years of binging in OA, unable to get better. And I told someone, I said, well, I have a good relationship with God. And he said to me, if you have such a good relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer. I couldn't answer because he was right. If I had such a great relationship with God and a great relationship with God doesn't mean praying and believing. It means being surrendered to his will as best I can and trusting him with the outcomes. Because if I'm trusting him with outcomes, I don't have to manipulate everything to get my way. So liquor or for us food is a symptom. So it says we had to get down to causes and conditions and says we have to take an inventory and they compare it to a business, right? If someone owns, let's say a convenience store, well, once a year or so they shut down the store and take inventory um, to look for things that are expired, things that now, nah, you know, a year ago, people used to buy this. Now no one's buying it anymore. No one's buying Beanie Babies anymore. We don't need to, you know, order a case of 10,000 to sell. So we look to see what isn't work, what doesn't work. And they say, if the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. Well, I know the value I used to fool myself about. My value was 
I'm smart. No one else is. I know everything. No one else knows anything. So those kind of values had to be changed and me to realize it didn't really know all that much. And a lot of people knew a whole lot more. Um, so, so it says, right, we can't think that we're better than we are. And it says, okay, so the first thing we do is we search out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. So what I have my sponsees do is, and you can find this on the Recovery Jam website under the tab, other resources, there's a defect list page. And I have them just go through a list of, I listed all the defects I have. Um, so it's quite a healthy list. And I tell people, if you don't have something on this list, leave it out. If you have something that isn't on this list, add it, write down your defect, Let's look up the definition so you see what it is. Look up the opposite so you know what to practice and then give an example of the defect, right? We search out the flaws in our makeup. We want to start seeing, yeah, we're really not all that. And it tells us what the number one offender is, the number one manifestation of self. And they say it's resentment, that it destroys more alcoholics more compulsive eaters than anything else. So what destroys me isn't a certain food, although of course, if there's a food that triggers me to eat compulsively, I'm gonna leave it off my food plan. But they're saying the number one thing that destroys me is resentment. Why? And they say, because from it stem all forms of spiritual disease. We're not only mentally and physically sick, ill, we're spiritually sick. I mean, what comes from resentment, um, vengefulness, right? Just all sorts of nasty things. Um, and then they tell us when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So not get myself in order physically, you know, get the food in order and then work the steps. It's I have to connect with God so that I'm able to put the food down. Now, that being said, most of us can put the food down long enough to have a conversation with our sponsors about the steps and to get through the first couple of steps. But we never know how long willpower is going to last. And for people like me, willpower often didn't get me to lunch. So I needed to, as soon as I made a decision to work this, to turn to God right away. I didn't have the luxury of time. So it's possible to get through these steps rapidly. Um, and that's what we need to do. From day one, we can start working spiritual principles. We can stop lying. We can stop stealing. We can start thinking of others. So how do we do that? We think of, okay, who are the others in my life? Well, some of us have families. Some of us have jobs. I would say all of us have neighbors and think, okay, what needs do they have? And can I reasonably fill them? Can I do some self-sacrifice to serve others? We can all do that. From day one, we can start doing that. Um, I was living in New York City when I started working this program. I didn't have anything to give anyone. I made sandwiches for homeless people in New York City. I mean, I just thought like, what can I do to be of use? And we start doing that right away. 
And again, they tell us when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. When our soul gets healed, our minds and our bodies start heal healing. So then they get real practical. They say, okay, we set them on paper. We list all our resentments and we ask ourselves why. And it says, what could be threatened? Our self-esteem. Well, that means, you know, if I think I'm better than everyone and someone shows me that I'm uh, really not, that might affect my self-esteem. If someone makes me feel less than. Um, although the great thing in recovery is that when we realize that God has our back, um, we don't really feel less than. It's like, God loves me. It doesn't matter so much what other people say or think about me. But our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, if something threatens my financial security, my ambitions. Now that might be my career ambitions, but I have found that um, on my resentment inventory, my ambitions were almost always affected. And it went something like this. I want someone to do a certain thing or the weather to go a certain way so that I can get what I want and it's not happening. I have an ambition other than let me do God's will. And someone or something is getting in the way of that. Our personal relationships, that would be like if you went up to Denise and said, ah, don't talk to Janet anymore. She's a nasty person. You know, then you would have affected my personal relationships, my sex relationships. You know, if you come and you flirt with my husband. Um, so we get all this down on paper. Um, who we resent, sorry, why and what it affects. And then it says we go back and we just look at it again before we look at our part. So on when I have my sponsees do their resentment inventory, I have them first write column one, and this is all on our website, who I resent, column two, why, column three, what it affects. And then I tell them, stop, do that for all your resentments and stop. And then we kind of look at the book and it talks about resentments and it says, okay, Sometimes other people are wrong and that's as far as most of us got or it's remorse and we're mad at ourselves. So let me digress for a second. Um, people sometimes ask, should I put myself on a resentment inventory? And I personally find it to be very awkward. Um, so what am I going to say? Like I resent myself because I yelled at my kids. It affects my, well, I don't know, maybe my personal relationships what's my part? I yelled at my kids. So it's awkward. I always find it awkward. So a better way I have found is just to confess my character defect, to do a tent on my harm. I yelled at my kids. That was my harm. Why did I yell at my kids? You know, so instead of doing it as a resentment against myself, to look at it as a defect I indulged in and work it through that way. If anyone has any questions on that, happy to help. So it says, um, it tells us again on page 66, resentments are fatal. You know, for the normal person, they say it's a waste of time. We're squandering time that may have been worthwhile. But for the alcoholic whose hope, and I say whose only hope, is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, resentment is fatal. For why? 
why are resentments fatal? Fatal means like leads to death. Because when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, meaning God. So if God is the only one who can protect me from this illness and I shut myself off, I put a, you know, a, a metal cage between myself and God, I'm not protected. I'm on my own. And then I'm in trouble. And what happens then? It says the insanity of alcohol, of food returns and we drink or we eat again. And with us to drink is to die. It's an interesting sentence. I mean, do we really feel like that? And I think um, we really, those are the people we want to sponsor for people who feel if I eat compulsively, I may not die of a heart attack in three seconds, but I'm at the very least going to be in a living death. I'm going to feel like I used to feel like I'm a walking dead person. And to know that ultimately it's going to lead to physical, emotional, spiritual death. It's just going to lead to utter misery. Like these are the people that we sponsor. Um, not someone who wants to lose 10 pounds to look good for our high school reunion, right? That's, um, we're people that to eat, like we, I can't even, I don't even want to think of if I went off my food plan and where I would end up because it's just too horrible. So they say, okay, after we do all this, we realize how deadly resentments are. Um, we turn back to the list. So it says, we see we must escape. We realize, okay, resentments are deadly, but how? We can't wish them away. We can't just say, okay, God, please take away my resentment. We can't just do that. That's part of what we do, but we have to do more. And says, this was our course. So now they're telling us our directions, bottom of 66 on to 67. We realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Okay, I think this line gets abused a lot. That anyone who does anything at all that we don't like, we just say, oh, I'll pray for that poor spiritually sick person down in the valley up from my mountaintop. No. First, it says perhaps. Um, I've found, I've been told to instead of spiritually sick to say spiritually developing just like me, or as my sponsor says, they're human just like me. I'm no better. So we, um, and then it says, though we didn't like their symptoms, they like ourselves were sick, or again, I would say human, spiritually developing. I make plenty of mistakes. Um, we asked God, wherever it says we ask God, it means pray. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. So tolerance, that doesn't mean help me to tolerate these horrible people more. It means raise my threshold so that I'm not so thin-skinned, so every little thing doesn't bother me. Make me more tolerant when things don't go my way. Pity, I heard someone say the word pity now doesn't mean what it did when they wrote this book. And so I've crossed it out and written compassion and patience. It's not everyone is perfect and neither am I. Do I want everyone to judge me by how I am on my bad days? Mm -mm, I don't. And so it says, this is a sick man, or I would say a spiritually developing person, a fellow human being, just like me. How can I be helpful? 
God, save me from being angry. I need to be rescued from my own anger. Then thy will, God, your will be done. It says we don't retaliate, so we don't get them back. So no little barbed comments or things that I unfortunately did a whole bunch of times. No arguing. Um, and it says we can't be helpful to everyone, but at the very minimum, God will show us how to be kind and tolerant. So we spend some time in prayer. Then we pick up our list again and we go to column four. And it says, referring to our list again on middle of page 67, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where were we selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened? We disregarded the other person entirely. So I know that a lot of people in doing this for every resentment, they will write, here's where I was selfish. Here's where I was dishonest. Here's where I was self-seeking. Here's where I was frightened. Um, I don't believe the founders of AA did that. I, I mean, I don't have evidence, except I had a sponsor whose grand sponsor was Dr. Bob, and she didn't do it like that. It's just for everyone, what was my part? And again, I think it's very awkward to try and fit these four things to, to split hairs. What's the difference between selfish and self-seeking? And sometimes um, I'm not dishonest. If someone punches me in the nose and I'm mad at them, it's like I say, okay, where, where was I dishonest? Well, I'm not dishonest. Like, it's just, it gets really awkward and it takes up so much time. So one sentence I usually look for, like, what is my part? So I'll just like throw out some examples. Let's say I'm mad, my kids are out of the house now, but I had one who would not get up on time and the bus was always wait, the bus stop was our house and the bus was always waiting for her and I would get angry, you know? And then what's my part? What the bus driver does is none of my business bus driver wants to wait okay if the bus driver wants to leave without her and then she's got to like miss school or take an uber to school okay so my part is you know making her waking up on time and catching the bus no, she wasn't seven at the time she was like a you know a junior in high in high school making her wake up on time any of my business and I've actually found that a lot of the resentments I have or because I'm making things my business that aren't my business. How um, one parent or one sibling or one anyone treats another one is none of my, my business, unless someone who can't help themselves is getting abused. Um, but I had my parents um, in their marriage, my dad could be sitting in a room and he could have like a muffin three inches from where he was sitting. And my mom could be all the way across the house. And he would call Gloria. And she'd say, yes. And he'd say, can you bring me my muffin, please? And she'd run in and move the muffin three inches away. And I would like be burning up like, why is Trina like, but here's how the rest of their conversation would go. He would say, Gloria, thank you. I love you so much. And she would say, oh, Sam, I love you so much too. And then they would kiss and smooch and it would get all icky. They were happy as can be. It was none of my business. 
So a lot of things are not my business. Here's another thing that's often in our column four is um, I didn't have a hard conversation. So let's say um, the air conditioning is too cold and I'm cold at night and I'm angry at my husband for keeping the air up, you know, making it so cold. Well, what's my part? I didn't tell him that it bothers me to have the air conditioning so cold. See, we get mad at people for things when we haven't had a conversation about it. So those are um, some big ones that what other people do, the choices they make, again, unless there are small, small children and we're responsible for raising them, choices other people make, who they invite to their weddings or don't invite, not my business. So we look and see, um, and if we look at, we can look at the examples Bill Wilson has and do a couple. So on page 65, Bill says, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. Um, why? His attention to my wife affects his sex relations self-esteem. If he were to say my part, he doesn't have to go through the, where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened. He could just say, you know, what's his part? He would probably say, I wasn't home enough. I didn't give enough attention to my wife. And then he would do his column five. What were his character defects? Maybe it was workaholism. He was too busy at the office. Maybe it was alcoholism. He was drunk and didn't give her any attention. Maybe it was lust. He had a mistress. Okay. Um, Mr. Brown, why? Told my wife of my mistress. What's his part? Real simple in one sentence. I had a mistress, right? So again, don't have to go through where was I self-seek? Just I had a mistress. What were my defects? lust or whatever it was. Um, Mr. Brown, he may get my job at the office. What's his part? Probably. I showed up to, late to work every day or whatever it was. You see how simple it can be? Just one sentence. Where did I get the ball rolling? What's the thing I did that caused this to happen? Now let's talk about the times when um, there really is a sick person where someone really just does something that's rotten and we had no part in it. I would say that then my part is, I expect a sick person to act like a healthy person, right? I wouldn't expect someone who's crippled to get up out of his wheelchair and start running. And so I can't expect someone who's spiritually crippled or emotionally crippled to act the way an emotionally or spiritual, spiritually healthy person can. Now, that means, yes, I have to forgive them, but it doesn't mean I have to be in relationship. If someone is abusive to us or the relationship wouldn't be healthy, we don't have to be in relationship. We can forgive but not be in relationship. So they're two different things. Forgiveness does not mean, you know, we take back husbands who hit us. I'm not talking about my husband never hit me. That's just an example. We don't do things, you know, it doesn't mean that, but we have to forgive. And it tells us we pray, God save me from being angry. So I want to turn to, um, Fear. And again, happy to answer any questions about this. I had a very loving sponsor who, when she showed me this way, 
it was like it was like a light bulb went off, but some of them were hard. For instance, I had a relative, an elderly relative, who wanted to spend more time with me than I did with her. But I did spend the time and I was cheerful and helpful. And I'm, I said, well, what's my part? Because I'm doing the right actions. And she said, how about this? I think I shouldn't have to do things I don't want to do. And it was like dagger in my heart, selfish. That's it. Who am I to think I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do? And then a lot of my column five for my character defects was entitled. I think I'm entitled to an easy life. So if someone puts the other day, I had a resentment against someone who put me in a situation I felt where I either need had to confront her, which would be uncomfortable or to swallow it which would also be uncomfortable. And what's my part? I think people, you know, I think I'm entitled to an easy life and anyone who gets in the way of my life being easy, I get angry at. You know, I'm not entitled to an easy life. My life is easier probably than 99% of the world's. You know, it's okay if things don't always go my way. So then they turn to fear, page 67. Um, I think this is one of the greatest paragraphs in the book. It says, notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the, most of our resentments. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. Real interesting. We generally think of um, fear as an emotion. But if you think of other emotions like happy, sad, excited, um, you don't ever say an emotion is evil or good, but they are calling fear evil. Well, how come? Because it's an emotion, but it's more than an emotion. So if we think of step two, right? Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Faith actually does something in the spiritual world. It's a catalyst for God to start acting on our behalf. Well, they're saying, what what does fear do? It's set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Fear also sets things in motion, but not good things like faith in God does because fear is really faith that things aren't going to work out, that bad things are going to happen. If faith is trusting in God, Fear is trusting that God's not going to be there. So it says, um, fear set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve, right? Our book says our troubles are basically of our own making. But they say, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? I set the ball rolling if I have fear. And then they tell us how bad fear is, page 68. We think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble, more trouble. I mean, why do people steal? Like generally, I don't know, they're greedy. So they're saying fear is worse than greed. And it's in the same category as stealing. So I think of, okay, what category is that in? And I, I mean, I think of the 10 commandments, right? Thou shalt not steal. I'm thinking, okay, well, thou shalt not fear is not on that list of the top 10. But here's what is on that list. 
thou shalt have no other gods before me. If I'm in fear, I'm putting something else before God. I'm not trusting God supremely. So then they tell us, okay, what do we do about it? So it says, we reviewed them thoroughly. We put them on paper and we asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? So again, some people say, here's my fear. And then the next column is, did self-reliance fail me? Check yes or no. Well, yes, it's always yes. But I heard a, a bet, what I think is a better way. We asked ourselves why we had them. We drill down. Why do I have this fear? So here's my best example. Um, when my daughter was 16, I remember a time I was afraid to discipline her. Um, I was afraid because, so I drill down. So I'm afraid to discipline my daughter. Why? If I discipline her, then once she turns 18, she won't, she'll leave the house and never want to talk to me again. Okay. If she leaves the, and I keep drilling, if she leaves the house and never talks to me again, then when there's holidays, I'll be alone. See, I'm assuming that my husband and son are going to die or desert me or something. I will be alone. If I'm alone on holidays, I will be sad. So I drill down until I get to the point where it's like, I'll be sad um, or something, or I'll be uncomfortable. Then I look for my dishonest thinking. So it's dishonest thinking to say, if I discipline my daughter now, she's never going to want to talk to me again. That's just not true. Um, and it's dishonest thinking to think that if I don't have my daughter around, I'll be alone, that no one else is ever going to want to invite me for Thanksgiving dinner or something. And it's dishonest to think that if I'm alone, that equals being miserable. So there's all this dishonest thinking that I can ferret out of there. So I go through all my fears and then I pause and I ask God to remove the fears and direct my attention to what he would have me be or what he would have me do. So in that instance, it would be discipline my daughter appropriately with love. Um, so again, the list, it's on our website, column one, what I'm afraid of, column two, drill down, column three, the dishonest thinking, then prayer, then what action would God have me take? And they tell us on page 68, perhaps there's a better way, we think so, for we're now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. And then they say, we are in the world to play the role that God assigns. And here is a formula to always have serenity. Just to the extent that we do as we think he, God, would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So my natural instinct would be to get rid of the calamity but they're telling me I can have serenity, even if there's calamity. How? I have to do two things. One, I have to do what I think God would want me to, my surrender, my action. And I have to humbly rely on him. I have to trust that he's way smarter than I am, that he can see the future and I can't. And I trust him with the result. And then I can have serenity. So if we don't have serenity, it's a good exercise to look and say, okay, where am I not doing what I think God would have me? And where am I not relying on him? And they tell us, 
We never apologize for God. We let him demonstrate through us what he can do, right? God can use us to, to show his glory so that we can help others. And then they um, tell us the next thing is we do a sex inventory. And it's basically just a detailed harms inventory. We look to see how in our past relationships we've been selfish, we've been dishonest, we've been inconsiderate, we've hurt people, we've unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. We got it all down on paper, what we did and what we should have done instead. And if there's anyone in a relationship who um, wants to, because after that we craft a sex ideal and a sex ideal, um, it's partly about when we can have sex. It's like, if someone's single, it's like, can I pick up a guy in a bar? Do I have to wait till I'm married? Is it something in between such as third date, have to be engaged? So a person has to decide that with God. So that's the first part. But the second part is, how do I need to show up in my relationships? And I always at this part recommend a fantastic podcast that's on a vision for you. It's by Gina R. It was from January 27th, 2019. It's a podcast she did with two other people, but she speaks first on crafting a sex ideal within a marriage. And it's, I mean, People take pages and pages of notes. She's got some really good stuff there. So we come up with an ideal and it tells us whatever ideal is, we're willing to grow toward it. You know, often when we look back on our sex inventory and say, what did I do wrong? It's often, um, I shouldn't have got involved. You know, I should have got out as soon as there were these signs. Um, but then it tells us we have to grow toward our ideal and we have to be very careful not to bring out about more harm because on page 70, it tells us if we fall short of our ideal and harm others and we're not sorry, we are quite sure to drink. So I don't think that this applies to sex only. I think this applies to kind of our lives, right? Our book tells us we treat sex like any other problem. So it says, if we fall down on our ideal, so basically if we hurt others and we're not sorry, we are guaranteed to eat compulsively. So again, it's not always a first step problem if we eat compulsively. It doesn't mean, oh, you didn't understand what it was to be a compulsive eater. It's if I live my life hurting other people and not caring, then I'm not living a life that's really surrendered to God because God does not want me to treat people like that. So they say, okay, you finished your inventory. You've looked at your defects, your resentments, your fears, your sex inventory, your harms. And it tells us the fourth step promise. We've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. And then they tell us, very interesting, faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you're convinced now that God can remove, not that we remove ourselves, that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. See, my job is to inventory 
And then God is so good. He doesn't say, Janet, you made this mess. You created all these character defects in yourself. You allowed yourself to live in resentments. I'm here, but you got to clean this all up yourself. Uh Uh-uh. That's why we have step six and seven. We humbly ask God to remove our defects of character because we can't do it ourselves. So God isn't a God who meets us halfway. I believe that God is a God who we do like 1% and then he goes the other 99% of the way. And with that, I pass. Thanks.